Hey everybody, this is Aaron. Welcome to the Good Lion Podcast. I wanted to let you know that we're starting something new. It's going to be basically a new branch of what we do here at the Good Lion Podcast called Good Lion Ministries, and I'm really, really excited about it. It's going to be an online Bible study slash discipleship group for young adults, specifically for people in their late teens to late 20s. If you've listened to my story at all on this podcast, you know that my heart was to go into college ministry or Bible college ministry, and then COVID just messed up everybody's plans. And so it's been hard for me to figure out what to do in person with people. When I first came to Oklahoma, I started a Bible study at a coffee shop. Love doing that. But right now, everything just seems to be limited. And I was sitting around recently praying about this and I was like, man, do I just give in to the limitations or do I work with them? And so I was thinking about all of you who listen to the podcast and how a lot of you are in that young adults age group and demographic. And man, Brian and I just have such a heart to disciple that group to come alongside as older brothers in Christ and point people to Jesus. And so, yeah, on Monday nights, I'm going to be getting together with anybody who wants. I'll be preaching some sermons. At times, I'll have some guest speakers. Brian Higgins himself might jump in and teach every so often, which will be great. And then after the teaching, we're going to go into a time of discussion, probably over Facebook groups. We'll jump into like a massive video chat and get to know each other better and see what kind of discipleship stuff happens. So I'm really excited. I'm a little nervous because I've never done anything like this before, but I'm excited to see what God does with it. So if you are interested in being a part of this, we are having our first meeting on this upcoming Monday, the 22nd. 6 p.m. PST, or California time, as I like to call it. If you're interested in joining, you can let us know. You can email us at goodlionnetwork at gmail.com. Probably the easiest way would just to be send me an Instagram direct message. My Instagram handle is just at Aaron Salvato, or you can send it to our podcast Instagram at goodlionpodcast. We're really hoping that our time together in discipleship and studying the scripture and discussion will lead to stuff that will actually influence the podcast. And by that, I mean influencing what questions go into the Q&A episodes or the deep dives into theology that Brian and I like to do. We're just excited to see how these two things will come together. Uh, we're going to start putting out the sermons that I'm preaching midweek. So sometime soon, we might be putting out two episodes a week, one normal episode and one sermon. And so even if you don't want to be a part of the discussion group, you can still check out the sermons. And my heart is just that it would be a blessing to you and help you continue on your path walking with Jesus. So thank you for listening to my little infomercial for this. And now let's get into the actual episode. When God made the world, he called it good. And yet, when we look at the world today, a lot of times it doesn't really seem very good. Yeah, it's filled with pandemics and violence and racism and division. And that's just this year. When we look back at human history, it is filled with all kinds of terrible things. Now, we've talked at length on this podcast about whether or not God causes evil. And while we recommend you go back and listen to those past episodes, our short answer was no, God doesn't cause evil, but 
he does allow it. And like with most areas of theology, when one question gets answered, a thousand more troubling questions seem to rise up behind it. So if God doesn't allow evil, isn't that really just as bad as him causing it? Right. Like if you had the power to stop a tragedy from occurring, but you didn't, we'd kind of blame you for the tragedy. If you watch the house burn while you are holding the fire hose, but you don't put out the fire, it's kind of on you. You kind of destroyed the house. Exactly. So how can a good God allow evil to happen? If he allows it, is that really any better than him just straight up causing it? You are listening to The Good Line Podcast. Welcome to The Good Lion Podcast. I am Brian Higgins. And I'm Aaron Salvato. And we are wrapping up a conversation that we have been having for a very long time. Yeah, it's been going on for a few months now. We started it in the middle of the pandemic crisis, sort of diving into some of these theological questions about God and his goodness. It's a lot of stuff that either people are asking or maybe they're too afraid to ask, but they're thinking it in their head. Yeah, and, and like everything else this year, we started... Do you remember when the first episode from this series came out, Aaron? I have the worst memory in the world, so no, I don't. But I feel like it might have been, gosh, two or three months ago when we started diving into this. The first episode in this series came out on May 1st. Yeah, wow, crazy. <laughs> Which is a really long time ago. And we totally thought when we were putting these episodes together that these were going to run in six consecutive weeks. And like everything else this year, the plan changed. Well, so here we are finally wrapping up this series. You know, it's hilarious is actually when we first put together that initial outline, I was like, okay, so this is just going to be one episode. And then I think we started recording that first episode and we realized like, oh no, this needs to be like six or seven. Yeah. If there's anything that we've learned through recording, it's that. So one of the things that I would always try to do to help myself teach shorter messages. And I recommend this for people who are just starting to teach the Bible. This is kind of like the episode where Good Lion Podcast and First Time Bible Teacher begin to merge. Yeah, listen but to what Brian I says because he has a podcast called First Time Bible Teacher. So he is an authority. It's true. That's If someone makes a podcast, they know what they're talking about. It's true. But I used to always tell people, if you want to teach shorter messages, just prepare fewer notes until eventually you teach something that's like embarrassingly short <laughs> and then you know how much you actually need. Hmm, I like that. And we've, I feel like we've tried to make our notes shorter and shorter and we just keep hitting the same length every time. Yeah. Yeah. So we just talk forever. We've got a lot to talk about and we're verbal processors and that's part of the reason why we have a podcast and uh, hopefully you listening to this enjoy that. But why don't we, why don't we recap where we've been? Yes, this is episode six in the series. So to give the quick overview of how we've gotten to this point, our first episode, which came out back in May, was trying to answer the question, is God punishing certain people through COVID-19? You know, this is something that seems to come up in church circles every time some kind of disaster or tragedy happens. We talked about this, how there's examples of after 9-11 or after Hurricane Katrina, prominent Christian leaders would come out and say, this is God judging America because America is supporting gay marriage or because America supports abortion or different things like that. So we tried to attack that question head on. Right. 
Episode two, we asked the question, does God primarily use disasters as punishment? And the conclusion we came to was, no, that's not really how he tends to operate post-Jesus, post-resurrection. What we're dealing with is a broken world. God wants to heal that brokenness, but he often allows the brokenness to happen and exist, and he uses that brokenness to wake us up to the reality that we need him. And very often he uses that brokenness to wake us up to the reality of what he's doing in the world and how he wants to save us. That idea is what led us into episode three, can wrath be redemptive? When we think of wrath, often we think of destruction Mm -hmm. or God judging at the end of all things. Fireballs. But can God's Yeah, but can God's anger towards sin actually be a good thing? Can it be redemptive? And we said, yes, God's wrath is often about preserving his plan of salvation and preserving his people. Mm. So there are times where God can act in a way that we would look at and say like, whoa, that's some old school biblical wrath going on, but it's all for the purpose of of preserving people Mm. and drawing more people into his plan of redemption. Yep. That brought us to episode four, where we were like, okay, we've talked about wrath, but what actually is wrath and how does it work? And the main image we turned to was this image found in scripture of the cup of wrath. It was this idea of when you defy God, the way that he punishes us is not by throwing fireballs or thunderbolts at us, But instead, he allows us to drink in our own choices, our own consequences, and our own destruction from our bad choices. Our our judgment is God cementing our own choices on us. And one day there's going to be a final judgment where God ceases his attempt to save those who are rebelling, and he allows them to experience the full weight of what that choice of rebellion actually means. Yeah, and I think those are ideas that are going to factor into today's conversation Mm. uh, a little bit. But uh, the immediate context to today's conversation is the last episode we did before this one, episode five, does God cause evil or does he allow it? Mm. And we looked at things in scripture and we examined mainly the the thinking of Gary Brashears and of John Piper. And through all of that examination, we landed in the place of God allows evil. A good mm. God would not be the one causing evil and a good God couldn't cause evil and then judge us for the thing that he's causing. Yep. And that brings us now to our big question for today. If God allows evil, isn't that basically the same thing as him causing it? In our introduction to this episode, we talked about God created the world and he called it good. Hmm. But then we look at the world today and it doesn't look all that good. Well, the story of that transition happens in Genesis chapter 3. Right. Yeah, this is where Eve is tempted by a snake, a serpent, which many biblical scholars believe was either Satan himself or a being sent by Satan to deceive her. There's strong evidence for this being directly connected to the dark force that's always fought against God since the beginning. And so there's the snake serpent who is tempting her saying, hey, take from this tree of knowledge and good and evil. God is lying to you. He's telling you that you don't need this knowledge. He's trying to hold you back. If you would just take this knowledge, then you'll see with the eyes of a God and you'll be like a God. And so This is something God specifically warned humans not to do because he knew that 
this knowledge of good and evil would actually open them up to the reality of death. And so she ends up taking from the tree and it ends up cursing the world and setting evil into the world. Now it's worth talking about this becomes a moment in scripture that a lot of people get really upset about. There's yeah. a lot of objections to this being the introduction of evil. I, and I think there's kind of two main problems that people have with this. Hmm. The first is why on earth is that tree there <laughs> yeah. if it's such a bad thing? Right. And the second one is why is it that big of a deal to go and eat from that tree? Oh, yeah. Like so if you had a tree in your backyard and you asked your kids, hey, please don't eat from that tree and then they went and ate from it, you wouldn't say, get out of the house and never come back. <laughs> and like, it feels like kind of an overreaction yeah, yeah. that all the evil we see in the world happens from one taste of that fruit. Like it's, it almost makes me think of a uh, childproofing. Like if you have a house and you're a good parent, yeah. you're going to childproof your home. And if there was like a button, like a red button where it's like, if you press this button, your house will explode. And you just kind of put it in the center of the room and say to your kid, hey, you can you can touch all of these other buttons, but that red one, don't touch it. Like, it's almost like an atheist would look at this and be like, well, what did you expect? Like, what did you think was going to happen? I just love, there? I love the idea of picturing like just a room full of buttons. But there's one. And just yeah. saying like, there's one button that's going to blow up the house. Isn't that what we're but... dealing with? I mean, they're in a garden. There's fruit everywhere, but it's like there's, no, it's there's a, trees it's everywhere. It's a good analogy. It's just <laughs> funny to picture like setting a toddler loose into a room where all it is is buttons. Like there's no furniture. <laughs> there's nothing else. There's just buttons. Yeah, it's it's something I've thought about for sure. Like, God, why did you not make it less easy <laughs> to doom the world into destruction? Because that's the thing. It, yeah. it wasn't It wasn't just like, you know, there, there wasn't even like a three strikes you're out, you know? It was literally mm -hmm. like all or nothing. It was don't eat the fruit or if you do, you will die. It's, it's intense. Yeah. And I always think like, why couldn't the tree have just been taller? <laughs> or like, why couldn't the tree like, how come getting to this tree like it? it's talked about as being in the center of the garden. Like, why couldn't it have been like the three movie trip to Mordor mm. to get to this tree? Like, why couldn't it have been something a lot more deliberate where it's not just like, oh, you know, that apple looks good, but it had to be like, nope, we're going to the bad tree. And like, we want to do this our own way. Like we can, as much as we joke about the analogies, like that's a very real question and it's worth us diving into. And to put, remember a couple episodes where you had a thesis? Yeah. I'm going to have a thesis Ooh. right now. All right. Yeah. Hit us with that this thesis, This show is Dr. getting a Brian. lot smarter in season four. <laughs> we can only hope. We can only hope. We can only hope. My thinking regarding this, or I'll just stick with the word, my thesis. I felt, I started feeling embarrassed Finish that strong. we're using the word thesis. <laughs> Finish your thesis strong. This tree needed to be there if we were ever going to have real relationship with God. Hmm. So when you think about any meaningful relationship you have, part of what you value is that the other party in that relationship chooses to be there with you. Like if with this podcast, if you were only doing this with me, Aaron, because we had signed a really bad contract, but you hated doing it and you were stuck in this, Ooh. This would be a lot less fun for me. Yeah, that would be extremely lame. I don't think anybody would 
enjoy the show if that was the case. I think part of the good thing about this show is you and I actually enjoy talking to one another. Yeah, there's a real friendship that we both want to be part of. Mm -hmm. And think about like, I don't know if you still have this fear, but like I totally had this fear a bunch as a kid and I think it's a really common thing. Have you ever, do you still have the thought that your friends don't actually want to be friends with you? But like there's something wrong with you that you don't know. And so everybody just like has to be nice to you because it'd be mean if they weren't. I've definitely had thoughts like that for sure. I thought that was just me. <laughs> I feel like that's something that a lot of people think about. Yeah. Like what if none of my relationships are real? What if I'm just living the Truman Show? <laughs> like it, so it can't be only your thought. The no, guy who yeah. made the Truman Show made a whole movie about it. Yes. But the thing that's so like... The thing that inspires fear in that thinking of like nobody really wants to, everybody is forced to be friends with me. Right. The reason you'd be so afraid of that is because you'd jump to that means none of my relationships are real. Yeah. If there's no option to leave, then you're not actually in a real relationship. Yes. Does that thinking make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it's something very much in line with just the way I've pondered through this over the years, because it is a tough question. Why did God allow humans to commit the first sin and allow the sin to come in and poison the world and poison people? Like, it's like, again, if you could stop that, if you're all knowing, and if you could see in advance, why wouldn't you stop it? And I don't, it, it, it's one of those things where it, this feels like such a cop out to say, but there's so much to the story we probably don't know because it's mm -hmm. it happened before any of us existed. And so we weren't there. We don't have the full picture and all of the little details of what went into it. But I do think at the end of the day, the bottom line that we can see is that God really does prove to us throughout the story of the scriptures that humans are not his playthings. He's not sitting like we were talking about in the last episode, like Andy with Toy Story moving us around like action figures and dolls. He really desires a real authentic relationship with us. He desires us to choose him in the same way he has chosen us. He loves us. He died for us. So with all that in mind, going back to the very beginning, like why did he allow it to happen? I don't think it was like a Homer Simpson moment, you know, where Homer's sitting at the <laughs> nuclear plant and he hits the wrong button. Oh no, what have I done? Don't like, you know, I don't think that was the case. I think God knew what was going on and he knew, oh man, if I give the humans this choice, I can see what's going to happen. But then he looks even further than that and he sees the beauty of rescue, redemption, true love, true relationship, a restored heaven and restored earth. It's a scenario that God chose to allow to be played out because in the end, he saw the beauty of what would happen. And I can respect that even if I, as a, as a finite human, I can go, man, I don't know if I would have done it that way. I can look at it and go, I, I, I see the wisdom and the beauty in it, even though it, I mean, both of us, I think can agree it, a lot of the stuff we talk about when it comes to theology, it's very mysterious and it's very hard to wrap your head around. And even the smartest theologians out there who've written the systematic theology books, if you really sat down and talked with them about it, they'd probably admit that they too have times where it's like, man, this is, this stuff's crazy. It's, it's, we believe it, but man, is it heavy and mysterious and hard to understand at times. Yeah, I mean, I'm throwing this out as my thesis, but I'm not throwing it out the way that like the clickbaity guy 
really believes in the ridiculous hot take that he's throwing out there. Right. Like I, I do fully believe this, but that doesn't mean that it's without some mystery in my mind or that it's without some confusion. And I think the second piece of the questions that people have about this scene is actually helpful in us dealing with the first piece. So we could say that the tree needed to be there for the sake of real relationship, but it's still so hard for us to wrap our minds around that. Mm. But then why was it such a big deal Mm. that Adam and Eve went and chose to eat from this tree? And I think part of what we need to remember is that sometimes we think of evil in like the comic book sense. Mm. Like evil is like the grim reaper, like showing up into your house and like inspiring you to like say something mean to your sibling or whatever. That was like the most junior high like application that I could have thought of. Or like maybe Darth Vader as he's walking through the spaceship and the music, you know, the Imperial March is playing and it's just very, you can just feel the evil in the air, the thickness of it. He's about to go stab some people with a lightsaber, right? That was way more adult. Thank you. (laughs) There we go. That was a good, good turnaround. Yeah, but we think of evil as like this comic force, that moves its way through the world when really I think what we need to see is evil is what happens when you choose to run your life in a way that's contrary to what God designed. Mm -hmm. Like goodness is what happens when we live in God's presence and we imitate his character. Mm. Yeah. Evil is what happens when we remove ourselves from God's presence And we run after our own ideas instead of after his character. Yeah, absolutely. So one analogy that comes to my mind just now, so it may be a terrible analogy. I'll let you be the judge. Let's find out. So, right, ice, right? Ice is cold. It is designed to be in a cold environment like a fridge. It's not like if the fridge, right, was like, hey, ice cube, stay in me. I love you. I... I'm not trying to be controlling, but you will die if you leave the fridge. And the ice cube was like, no way. I want to leave the fridge. Forget you, fridge. In fact, I'm going to go over to the stove and sit on the burner because that looks like fun. What is happening is the heat from the outside is a force that is destroying the ice cube. It's, it's the opposite of the fridge, right? It's the opposite of what the ice cube is designed for and what's keeping it safe and and it's the environment that it's built for. Like from a purely, I am, I just want to say when I, before I say this, don't think I'm smart using these words because I'm not, I don't even know if I'm using this word the right way, but from like a purely metaphysical standpoint, I would say that sin is something we need to understand as it is destructive to us, like our personhood, our DNA, our genes, the reason why people grow old and die is because of sin. It's explicitly right there in the Bible. Um, If you eat of this fruit, you will die. The aging process and the decaying process begins with sin. That's not to say you, you have to get out of the mindset of sin being a list of good things and bad things where it's like, oh, like if you... Uh, don't exercise, you will die. If you smoke cigarettes, you will die. Like consequence and punishment. Sure, that that might be the case. Like it could speed up your death. But the reason that you're dying isn't because you did something bad and therefore you're being punished with death. It's that you you have been corrupted by this sin nature, which is both killing you and causing you to want to do things that are against God's nature. 
So you're the cube jumping out of the fridge and sitting on the burner. You'll die. You'll melt. I just loved you using the word metaphysical. (laughs) That was fantastic. I think that's a really good analogy, though. Like, I I think that it's really helpful not just to think of it, because sometimes we think of God's commands as like God is OCD about his house. Yeah, he's got like, I like it this way. I take off your shoes before you come in my house. That's Mm -hmm. my rule. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, you didn't take your shoes off. You're going to be punished forever. And it's like, (laughs) whoa, you should calm down, dude. Like it's easy to start painting God's commands in that sense, especially because we think so much about in every other circumstance, it feels like forgiveness is the right thing to do. And then in this first circumstance, the God who's super forgiving seems to really be very unforgiving Hmm. in the first part of Genesis 3. Hmm. Do you feel like that's a fair way to look at it? Oh, you mean his reaction to the sin? Yeah, like his reaction... The way it reads feels very much at face value as just crime and punishment. Like, oh, you broke my rules? Then I'm going to do this to you and that to you. Let me just do a little bit of reading to get us into the moment. So in Genesis 3, verse 6 tells us, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. This is after her conversation with the serpent, trying to convince her of all of those things about the fruit. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So they ate from this tree, immediately shame enters the picture. Mm. Now we get their conversation with God. In verse eight, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Mm. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Seems like a very normal sentence in most other contexts. Right. And then he said, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were exposed and in danger, essentially? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? So there it's like God has this recognition of like, if you're feeling shamed, it must be because you've gone after that tree that I told you not to. Mm. Verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here was with me and she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Great job, man. Just pass, pass the blame right along. Classic husband. Classic. Verse 13. Classic. Let's just say classic for like six more minutes. Classic. 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 Classic husband. Classic Adam. What a husband move. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So she does the same thing. She passes the blame right along to somebody else. Right. The next seven verses are just God cursing things. God's going to curse a snake. God's going to curse the woman. God's going to curse Adam. It just seems like after they both pass the blame a little bit, God is mad now. Right. And I think that that's a hard thing for us to begin wrapping our heads around. But I think what's also worth seeing here before we even get to the idea of is God overreacting or is he being too angry? 
there's such a clear picture in the verses that we just read that everybody recognizes things are different now. Yeah. Like everybody recognizes as shame has entered the picture, as God is walking towards them, but they run from him. Like there is a whole new way of relating between Mm. God and humanity that's already happening even before that conversation goes down. Mm. And I think what's going on here is Adam and Eve didn't just break one of God's really picky rules. They changed the way that they relate to God because they moved him to a new position in their lives. Yes, yeah, that's very true. They were tempting without even knowing it. You know, it, w- it wasn't really a super conscious decision, but they were attempting to redefine good and evil for themselves. In the original scenario, God gave them everything that was good. And as far as evil, evil did exist. We see that from the serpent. The serpent is obviously evil. There's an influence of evil on him. Satan, which is known to us as the enemy. So that's, you know, the the main demon who led the rebellion against God in heaven and all the demons that followed him. That enemy is present. There's, There's the presence of that enemy there in the snake. And so God knows of evil. He knows that it's out there, but for Adam and Eve, he's, he's, he's shielding them from it and saying, I can give you a life where you don't have to even think about evil. You don't have to know about it. You don't have to experience it. I am just going to give you the good things. And what they do is they say, well, I actually want to define what is right and what is wrong. And in doing so, they open themselves and the entire world up to that ancient evil that is against God and trying to destroy humans. They opened that floodgate up. They opened Pandora's box in that moment. Yeah, they completely reshaped the way that humanity was supposed to run. So the illustration that I've been thinking through, you've got your ice cube. I'm now going to bring my Honda into the situation. (laughs) All right. Let's call this episode Honda and Ice. Let's not. And say we did. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. So in, in the Honda analogy, I bring up a Honda because I drive a 2004 Honda Accord. Hmm. I think I've said that on this podcast already. Nice. I don't know if I have. Either way, with any car, there's a specific way that it's supposed to run. Hmm. You know, you're supposed to use a certain amount of oil. You're supposed to use a certain kind of fuel. You're supposed to make sure the tires have a certain amount of air in it. There's all of these really specific things that are required for the car to work in a certain way. And if you decided you were going to change any of those parameters, that's not the car maker's fault. So Mm. if I take my Honda and I go to a gas station and I'm like, hey, I'm about to run out of fuel, got any Gatorade? (laughs) And they were like, we do inside, but like your car needs gasoline. I'm like, no, no, Gatorade is really helpful for me as a person. So my Honda drinks Gatorade. Mm. And like, if I just start pouring Gatorade into the fuel tank, that's not going to be good. It's not Honda's fault that I messed up the good thing. I chose to do something different than the creators intended. And that different led to destruction. Mm -hmm. But none of us would then look at Honda and be like, how come they couldn't make a gas cap that blocks out Gatorade? Mm. Like we wouldn't blame the creator for me misusing creation. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. I love it. I love the Honda analogy. Uh, Everything you're saying, it's bringing me to the parable of the prodigal son. I think a lot of times we forget that Jesus's parables, it's he's explaining how his 
history and how his home world work. I talk, I'm talking about Jesus like as if he's an alien, but we forget a lot of times as Christians, that's kind of essentially a good parallel because he's a being from another world. He's from the spiritual realm, right? So when he's talking to us about parables, he is speaking about things that we can't even comprehend. And he's trying to dumb it down in a story form for us to understand, right? So mm-hmm. does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So with the story of the prodigal son, what happens? There's a father and he's given the son everything. And the son says, actually, I want what's mine. I want to define what's right and wrong. I want my inheritance and I want to go spend it how I see fit, not how you tell me it is. And the father lets him go. Like the father could have said, nope, you're not going to get that inheritance, right? But he lets him go. And the father knows that his son is rebellious. He knows that he's going to go wreck his life, right? But he allows him to go. And then when the son comes back, there's redemption and he welcomes him back and he accepts him. And that's, I think Jesus is trying to tell us something in that story. He's trying to tell us that, hey, the father knew what humanity was going to do when it rebelled and ran away. But he also knew what was going to happen when he was able to win humanity back and accept humanity back. And there's beauty in that, I think. It, it gives us a taste of God saying, I know, I, I know what's going to happen in these scenarios, but I'm letting them play out for a reason. Because in the end, me allowing you to choose your own way and then me rescuing you from your own destruction is a far better love story than me being like the beast and Beauty and the Beast and locking you in the castle. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And it feels like that's where the rest of this chapter is going to want to bring us. Hmm. Should we jump into the rest of Genesis 3? Yeah, let's do it. So the idea that it seems like we've been trying to flesh out and the idea that seems to be right here for us in the Bible is that it's not God causing evil to happen. Rather, it's him allowing evil to happen. Which, to be fair, is something that a lot of skeptics would argue with, with saying, like, isn't that just as bad for him to allow evil when he could stop it? Isn't it just as bad as if he caused it in the first place? Yeah, it's like that famous quote that's been attributed to, like, anyone that you think is remotely good. (laughs) The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Yeah, I think I've heard that attributed to like Abe Lincoln, C.S. Lewis, Winston Churchill. I've heard heard that like Gandhi said it once. (laughs) But no, it's a good quote. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to just sit back and do nothing. But that's exactly the point that we're trying to make. God is not just sitting back and doing nothing. He's actively fighting against evil all throughout the story. And that's actually where these next verses bring us. Right here in Genesis 3, We're not just going to watch God get angry. If anything, the first thing we're going to see him get angry at is evil itself. And he's going to declare war on evil right here in Genesis 3. Yeah. This is that famous prophecy about the snake crusher. God isn't going to be passive when evil enters the world. In fact, he's going to declare war on it. It's the famous and slightly strange, if we're honest, prophecy about the snake crusher. So, so following, following right from what we were just reading, 
We see God told the serpent. So this is the first person he's going to address. He said, Adam, what went on? And he's like, oh, it was Eve's fault. And he's like, Eve, what happened? She's like, oh, there was a snake. (laughs) Right after that, God tells the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed. You're cursed beyond all cattle and wild animals. You're cursed to slink on your belly and eat dirt all your life. But here's the main part. I'm declaring war between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. He'll wound your head, but you'll wound his heel. So right here, immediately, there is going to be a fight. This is the beginning point of God declaring war against evil. He's not passive towards it. He's not allowing it in like the Ken Jeong way of like, I'll allow it, whatever. (laughs) Like he's actively saying, I hate this. This is corrupting humanity, and I am going to actively fight against it every single day. Yeah, it's important to realize that there is symbolism loaded all throughout the Bible. And so sometimes you're reading something at face value and you're thinking, what does this mean? And it seems to have a basic layer of meaning. So you can read this and think, okay, so God is declaring war between women and snakes, right? Because that's how it reads in the beginning, right? Like, oh, like you're cursed beyond all the cattle and wild animals and you're going to slink on your belly and eat dirt all your life. That seems like it's almost like basically, okay, what was God saying here? Originally, snakes were more like lizards and they had arms and legs and now they're getting their arms and legs ripped off and they got to slink around and eat dirt, right? Well, first of all, think about it. Like practically, do snakes eat dirt? Like, no, like they eat animals, right? They eat mice and birds and all types of things. So what is the Bible actually saying? This is loaded with symbolism. And basically he's looking at the serpent, but what is the serpent? It's a manifestation of these dark forces, the Satan that are coming against God. And basically he's saying, you know, you guys were my angels at one point, but now you're demons. Like I'm, I am taking away your metaphorical legs. You're going to metaphorically be slinking around in the darkness, eating dirt all your life. He's cutting them off from heaven. He's saying, you can't go back there. Instead, you have to live in darkness. And so when he's saying, I declare war between you and the woman, he's not saying, oh, I, you know, women and snakes are going to hate each other. That doesn't work. Guess what? Men hate snakes too, except for the weird ones who have snakes as pets. If you have a snake as a pet, I'm sorry, but that's weird. It is. (laughs) It is. It's very weird. Um, But anyway, you know what I'm saying? When he's saying, I declare war between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, He's not saying that Eve and her kids are going to hate snakes, right? What he's saying is Satan, the original demon who rebelled against God, and then the Satan, the enemy, the demons who went with him, that's his offspring, his spiritual offspring. He led that rebellion, right? And then he's saying to the woman, your offspring, humanity, is going to be in constant war between these demonic forces which sounds terrible, right? But then he gives this promise of the offspring of the woman is going to wound your head and you'll wound his heel. So I don't know about you, but if you're a snake, getting your head crushed is much worse than if you're a human and you get your heel bit, right? One of those things is worse than the other. Isn't this like exactly the situation that Michael Scott was in (laughs) where he burns his foot on a George Foreman grill and Dwight gets a concussion and he asks the doctor (laughs) which is worse, a head injury or a foot injury? And the doctor immediately says the head injury. 
I love that you went there. That's that's beautiful. Yeah, no, it's like the most direct that question has ever been asked. A head injury is worse than a heel injury. So basically, this is a prophecy, and it's looking forward to the cross. And in God's eyes, getting crucified, it's like in His mind, yeah, it's hard, it's painful, it's terrible, but it's only a flesh wound, right? It's it's He's gonna rise from the dead. He's gonna come back from it. So it that is that is the bru- the cross. That is the bruising of the heel. But then the crushing of the head is actually accomplished on the cross. When Jesus dies and resurrects, he crushes evil right at the head, cuts off the head of the snake, and now the snake has no more power. So what you're basically saying is these two verses, Genesis 3 verses 14 and 15, outline the rest of the Bible. Yes. That's a right way to look at these. Yes, absolutely. It's it's literally laying out the battle plan for the future. This is the main tension that the Bible is going to try to resolve. We had this fight begin between the descendants of a serpent and the descendants of the woman being the forces of evil and humanity. God actively cares about that fight and the rest of the Bible is him fighting to free humanity Yes, from yeah. the powers of evil. Yes, yes. He allowed the snake in the garden. He allowed the evil to happen. But ultimately, he hates the evil and what it does and what it brings. And his ultimate goal is to fight it and eradicate it. Evil corrupts the planet and humanity. But God is fighting that reality every day. And he eventually will completely defeat it. And I would argue the concept of evil is more than like a philosophical moral concept. It's actually a dark force. I've said this before, but but sin and evil is a dark force. Think of it almost like a military force with its own strategies and tactics. Joshua Ryan Butler in his book, Skeletons in God's Closet, fleshed this out in a really great way. He basically said, you know, is America a place or is it a force? Like, yeah, it's a place that you live but it's also a military force. If if you're living in a foreign country and there's bombs with U.S. flags dropping on you, you're not experiencing America in that moment as a place. You're experiencing it as a force that is invading your place. And that's the same thing with hell and sin. Hell, yes, it's a place. It is a physical place that was made for the angels and demons, but it's also a force. Sin and evil is a force. We have to remember there is something that is greater than evil behind the scenes of evil, if that makes sense. The brokenness and corruption, the reason why we have wars and racism and violence and hurricanes and plagues and pandemics, there's something actively trying to kill humanity and wipe it out. And God has been fighting that enemy since the very beginning. As we're filling out this idea of God allowing evil, even while he wants to work against it, let's look at what might be one of the most confusing passages in the Bible. Hmm. And that's particularly the story of Job. Yeah. Just when you say the name Job, you think of him as a synonym for suffering. Hmm. He went through such terrible stuff. He went through crazy amounts of suffering. And yet at the end of his story, if we just fast forward all the way to the end of it, he continues to put his trust in God, even though he has questions and doubts about God in the midst of his suffering. By the time you reach the end of it, it is a really inspiring book. It's incredible 
that a guy can lose his family, he can lose his house, he can lose his wealth, and yet at the end of all of that, he can look at God and say, you're a good God, and you do everything you please, and I am sorry that I questioned you. Like, it's crazy to think that he arrives there, but he gets there through some pretty significant moral problems for the Christian, especially about the nature of God and the character of God. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because the story begins with Joe basically being a godly guy and he has a great life, which follows kind of that typical idea of if you live a godly life, you'll be blessed, right? But then Satan, the enemy, approaches God. It doesn't actually say Satan in the scriptures. It says the accuser, but that's one of those things that's often linked back to Satan. It's definitely an enemy of God. The accuser approaches God and basically asks for permission. He says, God, do you know that the only reason Job is good is because you bless him? If you took his blessing away and allowed me to go in and do my dirty work, Job would curse you to your face. And so it's like this cosmic bet between God and Satan and the cards they're playing with. It's like they're, they're playing with the life and soul of an actual human. It's super intense. Yeah. And as you're reading this, you're thinking like, hold on, the God that I know, the, the Jesus of the New Testament would never be in a situation where he's sitting down at the proverbial poker table with the devil being like, no, no, I, I bet he'll do it. Like, he'll be good to me. Like, I'll, I'll take that bet. Like, it, it almost feels like God is like a degenerate gambler. Yeah. Because he actually begins the conversation with Satan. Yeah. He's like, hey, did you notice Job? I bet <laughs> I can win a couple bets off of him. It almost feels like that. Yeah, it's one of the weirdest stories in the Bible. And it seems so out of character because, I mean, I could never throughout the New Testament see Jesus saying to Satan, like, hey, look at Peter. Like, uh, what if we made a bet about what would happen if you messed with him? Like when, when Jesus is wandering through the desert and Satan tries to tempt him, Jesus is just like, get out of here. I don't want any of that noise, you know? So mm-hmm. it's like, this seems very out of character for God. Yeah. And yet when we look at the text, that is exactly what's happening. Satan says, I bet I can make Job curse you. And God looks at him and says, all right, I'll take you up on that. Let's do it. And so Satan goes and he just completely wrecks Job's life. He sends different disasters his way that wipe out his business. His children get killed. Job is struck himself with this terrible disease where he's got these wounds and boils and these different problems with his skin. Job's friends even come to him and they accuse him. They're like, this is happening because you messed up. Like you did something wrong. God is mad at you. You need to fix this with God. You're getting God's wrath because you deserve it. Even though we know, reading through the story, Job's completely innocent. There was nothing that he did that triggered this series of events. Even his wife comes to him and is like, listen, Job, just curse God. Let's just be done with this. If this is what life is, this isn't life that's worth living. Don't hang on to your integrity. Don't hang on to your conviction. Like, just... Let it all go and let's just end it. Like it's a really, really dark story. Yeah, super dark. And there's two schools of thought when it comes to Job. There's some people who say that Job is literal. They say, oh, it's in the Bible. Therefore, it's a real story and it must have happened. And then there's other people who interpret the story as a parable, a sort of an old Jewish fable that is there to tell a story and and, uh, paint a lesson, right? Regardless of which one of those views is true, because we're not here to debate whether Job is true or fiction. 
We do want to point out, though, it is in Scripture. So whether it's historical or whether it's a parable, like Jesus's parables, which weren't historically true stories, but fictional stories based on truthful realities, it's still something that God allowed to be organized into the canon of Scripture, which means for us that this is a story that God wants us to pay attention to because he's trying to tell us something through it. Yeah, and through this story, God is depicted as taking on Satan's bet. He allowed that to be a picture of him that we see in the Bible, which it gets really scary for us because that raises the question, is this just how God normally operates? Like, is everything happening because Satan comes to God and is like, can I do some bad stuff? And then God's like, all right, go for it. Like, we can think, you know, Satan coming into heaven and being like, God, can I go murder that guy? And God's just like, sure, go for it. Like, can I make a pandemic happen? Like, can I ruin 2020? He's like, ah, they've had some good years. Like, go ahead, go wreck one of them. What's the big deal? And we can think of God as like sitting there and weighing out the pros and cons. And then every once in a while saying, yeah, go ahead. Do as you wish. I, I, I just stop eventually. Like maybe don't be like a hundred percent mean Satan, maybe be like 98% mean. And it creates this really weird picture of God. Mm. Yeah, no, it's such a weird and hard picture to grapple with. And it's definitely one that I feel like people can draw of God, this picture when they just read the story of Job at face value. But I don't really think this is the way that God and Satan operate on a regular basis because I think we need to look to scripture for patterns to see how they actually operate on a regular basis. So the patterns that we see in scripture seem to be almost two military forces locked in this constant battle between one another. It seems to be more along the lines of these two forces fighting against one another. Yeah, Yahweh and the angels on one side, Satan and the demons on the other. Yes, and we're not actually even talking metaphorically here. We're talking a literal battle. There's a really weird passage in Daniel 10 where Daniel is having a vision and talking to an angel. Here's a paraphrase of that exchange. The angel says to Daniel, hey, relax, Don't be afraid, Daniel. From the moment you decided to humble yourself to receive understanding, your prayers were heard and I set out to come to you. So an angel is a messenger, right? A messenger from God. So God is sending almost like a soldier down onto the ground floor to make contact with a human. Then the angel says, but I was waylaid. What's a better word for waylaid? I was uh, interrupted. Delayed. Yeah. Interrupted is better. But I was delayed, I was interrupted by the demon prince of the kingdom of Persia and was delayed for a good three weeks. But then Michael, one of the chief archangels, intervened to help me. Which that's one of those moments where he throws out demon prince of the kingdom of Persia like we've all met him. It sounds like a video game. Demon prince of the kingdom of Persia. Yeah, like that's an amazing thing that he's dropping as a casual side note to the fact that he has a message, but it also speaks to like when this angel shows up, he doesn't look at Daniel like you'll never guess what I saw. Like for him, it's like, yeah, it was, it was that demon prince. You know, this is part of what we deal with on a regular basis. Yeah. That's the thing. It's it's, so crazy for us. Yeah, no, it's, it's so regular for them, but it's not regular for us. We don't often, most of us, we don't see angels and demons literally Mm -hmm. manifested in front of us. 
But most, if I'm honest, most Christians don't think that often about angels and demons. We forget that we exist in a world that has been at war before even the first human war was fought. There's been a spiritual war. And when we say spiritual, I feel like a lot of people, it's like, it doesn't even seem real. When we say spiritual, it's like, oh, that's just related to your emotions and your feelings, spiritual warfare. No, like there's a spiritual realm. There are beings Mm -hmm. from another, I want to say dimension. It sounds, so much of Christianity sounds so weird when we start actually talking about it. We have to kind of own it instead of trying to explain yeah, it, it away. It sounds like it's science fiction, yeah, but it it's does. the most helpful way to think about it. Yeah, if we take it literally, there are angels and demons, and so we have an angel sent from God who's fighting in this war to help humans, and then a demon is sent by the enemy to try to stop And then the angel actually calls reinforcements. He calls this other angel named Michael who jumps in to fight that battle. So there is a war going on. There's this glimpse into what is going on behind the scenes that we read in that verse in Daniel. And there's clues scattered throughout the Bible where we get a picture of these two forces battling. Like, for instance, Ephesians 6, 10 through 11 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He's literally talking about an enemy who is scheming against humans that go back to the garden. That was one of the schemes. Second Corinthians 10 verse four through five. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. It's this idea that you can't stop Satan with a sword or a gun. (laughs) That's not the weapons that you fight with. The weapons are spiritual because there's a spiritual battle going on. We're physical humans, but we're actually called to participate in this spiritual battle. Yeah, and these aren't the only places where this concept comes up in the Bible. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he warns the people, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, which is like an extremely scary picture. Yeah. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Mm. So he's saying here, you know that Christians everywhere are all being hunted by the devil who's like a lion that wants to eat people. (laughs) Like that's just a normal part of the Christian experience in (laughs) Peter's mind. And then another example in James 4, 7, it says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Mm. Hitting that same idea of there's tension between what God wants to see happen and what the devil wants to see happen. Pick your side. Mm. But also, if you resist the devil and you choose to be on the side of God, you have found the greater side Mm. and the devil won't be able to do anything against that. Mm. It's good. And I think we can relate it all the way back to that, that fateful thing that happened in Eden, the snake crusher prophecy. This is a battle that's been going on. God is fighting. Satan is fighting. In the end, we know who will win, but it is a battle. In this war, God has a clear advantage because he sees and knows all things, things that we don't know, things that the enemy doesn't know. He's a superior being. Satan is powerful, but he's limited. Satan doesn't know what God is doing. He doesn't know God's plan the way that God knows Satan's plan. So Satan is watching, right? He's watching what God is doing. He's observing what God is doing. And Satan is coming up with his own plans and tactics and strategies. 
And all the while, God knows exactly what Satan is coming up with. He knows exactly what Satan is doing at any time. And he seems to be able to counteract those strategies with his own better strategies that always end up winning in the end. Yes, this is what brings me to the story of Joseph. So in the story of Joseph, it's not a matter of God causing all of these evil things to happen to Joseph, right? There's there's a military strategy that is going on in the background. That's something we have to realize in the Bible, in every Bible story and narrative, whether we're talking about Joseph or David and David's military conquests or Jesus and the 12 disciples, there is a literal battle of good and evil that is always going on behind the scenes. And there's military tactics that are happening between the forces of good and evil. So look at the story of Joseph, right? From not just kind of a Bible story, flannel graph, you know, beginning and end classic story mindset. Think of it from a tactical military viewpoint. So the story of Joseph is not the beginning of the story of God's people in Israel. It's further down the line after Adam and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So God and Satan at this point in the story, when you're reading Joseph, they've been at war for a long time. And at this point in the story, Satan doesn't know God's entire plan. All he really knows is that way back in Genesis 3, like we've been talking about, God made a threat that he was going to crush the serpent. He's going to crush Satan and his forces. He's going to crush evil. And Satan does not want to be crushed. He's thinking, how can I defeat God? And honestly, I think Satan does believe he can defeat God because if he didn't believe that, why would he rebel in the first place? If he just thought it was impossible, if he thought that there was no way to actually get that job done, why would he even attempt it? So I think in Satan's mind, he's thinking, uh, how can I defeat God? How can I destroy the humans and God's family? And so at this point in the story, who do we have as the main characters? Really, we're focused on Jacob and his 12 sons who are going to go on to become the 12 tribes of Israel. Right. So Satan must know from like a military strategic standpoint, this family is very important to God because he's been watching. He's been seeing, okay, God's been paying a lot of attention to this Abraham guy. And oh, now Isaac, right? And, and oh, okay, Jacob. That Like he is seeing that God is concentrating his efforts on this family. It would make sense for Satan to presume that this family is very important to whatever plans God is cooking up to crush the serpent. So from a military strategic standpoint, what's the best thing that you could do? destroy the family, stop the snake crusher. Exactly. So that's exactly what I believe Satan's trying to do here. He's he's influencing behind the scenes. You can bet that Satan and the demons are influencing the 12 brothers to cause division and grief in that family. And so they go against their brother. They try to kill him. They sell him into slavery. They lie to their dad and they say, oh, Joseph got killed by a wild animal. Look, there's blood on his coat. The sons are fighting, the dad is heartbroken, the brother has been sold off, and it's just, you know, what? who knows what's going to happen to Joseph? He's out of our hair. And, you know, the father, Jacob, he is about to die from a broken heart. It's, it's this very tragic story, and it's really all a part of Satan's plan. It's humans, right, acting independently. It's not like Satan's pulling the puppet strings, but there's an influence, I believe, that's there. It's what Satan meant for evil. And I know going back to our last episode, we talked about how, you know, Satan isn't in that verse, right? When it says what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But I do actually believe 
that there's an evil influence that's there. I believe that Satan was present throughout all of this plotting and planning to destroy the family of God. Yeah, I mean, Satan is all about influencing human behavior towards evil and destruction. So it's pretty natural to see here in a moment where evil and destruction are now going to be on full display. Of course, Satan wants that to happen. And to what degree he was able to influence it, we don't really know. Right. But certainly this is the kind of thing that he would want to see happen. So I would say if Satan's involved in this plot, which I very much believe he is, he goes even further than getting Joseph sold into slavery. He's pulling strings behind the scene. He's influencing things behind the scenes that is causing Joseph to get thrown in jail for getting accused of rape. And it's it's Satan working against humans trying to destroy the family of God because he knows that the family of God is the instrument that God is going to use to destroy him. So in my mind, it's all military strategy. And so from there, I would ask the question, okay, we can see what Satan's strategy is, right? It's to kill, steal, and destroy. He's actively doing that in this family. So then with God, what what is God's strategy? What does God want in this story? Well, if we look through the rest of the story, everywhere Joseph goes, he's highly favored. Mm. You know, when he was in Potiphar's house before the accusations, he was highly favored by Potiphar, even though he was sold as a slave. He became second in command in the house. When he then gets thrown into prison, he's highly favored there and he becomes Mm. second in command in the prison until ultimately he ends up becoming second in command in all of Egypt. He's vice Pharaoh and God is giving him this ability to think his way through and strategize through things and ultimately use administrative skills to be able to help save Egypt and by extension, save the family of Israel from a terrible famine that's on his way. Yeah, exactly. It's this big picture strategy where God is thinking, you know, Satan in his moment is thinking of what he's trying to do to the family, but God is also thinking about his master plan to not just save this family. What's the purpose of the family? Go back to Abraham. God said to Abraham, your family is going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. He's talking about the snake crusher. He's talking about Jesus who's going to come and save the world. And so this is the family that God has chosen. He's mapped out the future. He knows that this family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, this family is going to produce Jesus. He's going to be born through this line and save humanity. So if Jacob and his 12 sons get wiped out by a famine, who can't be born? Jesus. So in my mind, I'm seeing this as God knowing everything and being all powerful. And if God wanted to approach this problem the easy way, he could just literally stop Satan in his tracks and say, hey, I know your plan and I'm not going to let it happen. I'm not going to allow it. He could have sent angels to the 12 brothers and Jacob and to tell them all, hey, listen, Joseph is very special and you should just get along with him because he's going to be a part of this big plan to save the world. He could have sent more angels to Joseph and said, you know, hey, Joseph, we're we're messengers from God and we're sending you to Egypt because you're part of God's plan to save the land. Joseph could have like ridden into Egypt with a parade of angels like Prince Ali from Aladdin and went straight to the Pharaoh's palace and showed up in a big burst of light and had the voice of God literally boom from the sky like a trumpet saying, Pharaoh, this is my servant Joseph in whom I am well pleased. Listen to what he has to say. And, you know, Joseph could have right at that moment become vice Pharaoh, or maybe he could have just skipped straight to Pharaoh, right? Like God could have done this all the easy way, just holding Joseph's hand throughout the entire thing. 
He could have saved the land without any struggle or strife. And through this process, if God chose that path, I mean, God would have been glorified. God absolutely is powerful enough that he could have engineered this and pulled it off without a hitch, right? Absolutely. And yet what we see throughout all of the Bible is God loves to include his people into his plan. Hmm. And he's also willing to honor human choice. He's willing to let the brothers go ahead and make bad decisions seeing that this is all part of Satan's plan. He's willing to let Satan take his attempt, but seeing everything that Satan is doing and seeing Satan wanting to destroy the family, God's willing to allow that, but he's always going to respond to Satan's plan Hmm. with a much better plan. There may be some pain in the process, but it ultimately leads to a good result. You know, C.S. Lewis always used the example of the pain of the dentist can be a scary thing, but it ultimately leads to healing and wholeness. And so the pain of this root can be a scary thing, but it led to a more complete wholeness for everybody. Yeah, no, that's such a good point of God allowing humans to be a part of the process because humans being allowed in the process is always what introduces the pain, right? Like Adam Mm -hmm. and Eve being involved in the process is what brought sin into the world. God allowing the brothers in this story to play a part in the story, it brought a lot of pain and hurt into Joseph's life. And yet through the pain, God brings this healing, not just to Joseph's story, not just to the brother's story, because remember their story ends up good too. They reconcile with their brother. There's, There's healing in the family. They go on to be these 12 tribes of Israel. So yeah, like through the pain, God allows something beautiful to come through the ashes. And you know, at every key point of this story, if you follow the story of Joseph, there are things that Satan means for evil. But God steps in to intervene. He cuts off Satan with an even better plan. Yeah, it happens every step of the way. Joseph gets sold into slavery, ends up a slave at Potiphar's house. Really bad plan. God allows Joseph to get promoted. He becomes the head servant. Satan counteracts that. He tries to get Joseph accused of rape. He gets thrown into prison. God counteracts that and promotes him to be the most respected prisoner there. Joseph ends up getting released at that point. Then he ends up in front of Pharaoh. And from there, we we see how the story at every point, a bad plan is being turned around into a good thing God is doing. Yeah, he's this master chess player. And that's one of the reasons why I believe God is so glorious because he's always one step ahead, not just one step ahead. He's like a hundred million steps ahead of the enemy. He knows what Satan is up to and what us humans are up to as both we and Satan often work either together or independently to bring evil and destruction into the world. And yet he's counteracting those plans with even better plans. And the greatest way to see this is the cross. It's something that Satan had no idea what was coming. You know, really all Satan had to go off of was the snake crusher prophecy. <laughs> I, I wonder if Satan was even confused. He's like, but I'm not actually a snake. Like, what, is this pro- <laughs> what does this prophecy mean? And so I imagine Satan just in the back of his mind, just constantly wondering like, okay, when is it going to happen? When is he going to crush my head? And then the cross comes. And I mean, that completely throws Satan off guard. It cripples him. It wrecks his plans. It takes away his power. It takes away the finality of death. It takes away the ability for Satan to rob and steal and kill a soul. It allows a soul to escape death and live forever. Freedom and redemption and forgiveness, all these great things. The cross literally took the teeth out of the lion's mouth. And now, now all he can do is try to gum us to death. 
He's just gnawing at us, hoping <laughs> that maybe something will happen. Yeah. Yeah, and that's exactly the hope that we see all of the New Testament writers talk about after the death and resurrection of Jesus. There's the really famous verses at the end of Romans 8 where it says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Mm. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, the present or the future or any powers, height above, depth below, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ. Mm. That's what it all comes down to. No matter what Satan wants to throw at us, no matter what scheme or plan he comes up with, the thing is God's plan keeps working and keeps winning. And he keeps drawing people out of darkness and into light. Mm. And so when we think about the whole question that got us started, is it just as bad for God to allow evil only if he gives up after he allows it? (laughs) And what's so clear in the Bible is that God didn't give up when evil entered the world. That's when his plan really begun. Mm. And at every turn where Satan has tried to just ruin the world and make it a place where only evil reigns, it is so clear that Jesus made sure that's not the way things go. And one day evil will be perfectly dealt with. But in the meantime, evil is only here if you want it to be part of your life. Hmm. If you choose it and if you run after it. Yeah, there's Satan and his entire realm trying to lure you and pull you towards evil. And our desires are strong enough where they often pull us towards evil. Hmm. But God is always extending his hand out. He's always saying, just grab on and I'll pull you to safety. And it's what he wants to do for every single person. Hmm. That's so good. Something you just said there reminds me of John Lennon's classic song, Happy Christmas. And there's a line in there where he says, uh, war is over if you want it, which is Mm. total 60s hippy dippy thing to say, right? Very anti-war message. But I think it's, it's beautiful when we can relate that to our relationship with God. The battle's already won. War is over if you want it. You don't have to be fighting Satan with this idea of, I have to defeat Satan because he's already been defeated. Jesus fights your battles for you. And I think it's so important for us to remember, like I take so much comfort in trusting God with the future because I look at the cross. That was something he telegrammed. That was a punch he telegrammed way back in Genesis three, it took a long time to get there, right? It took years and years and years for the cross to eventually show up, but it did show up and it happened and evil was defeated on the cross. To me, I can look at that and say, wow, Jesus came through in a way that no one expected. I now look at the promise that we have after the cross, which is the new heaven, the new earth, the final destruction and defeat of evil. Sometimes in 2020, that can feel so far away because of all the the horrible things we're dealing with all the time. But I look at the cross and see how he came through then. And it just gives me hope to go, man, he's going to come through again. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that if somebody is with you in your greater difficulties, you trust them to be with you in your lesser difficulties. Mm. So if you go through like a time where you have a marriage problem or you have severe anxiety or depression, or you have a financial issue. 
if a friend proves themselves to you in a difficult moment like that, you really trust them when the problem is like you got a flat tire. Or you really trust them when the problem is like you need help moving. Like if someone shows up for you in the bigger moments, you can trust they're going to show up in the smaller moments. Well, in the story of humanity, the biggest moment was that sin threatened our relationship with God. And Jesus showed up for us in that moment. If he showed up for us then, of course he's going to show up for us now. That's really good. So as we're ending this episode, I just want to remind us of a few things. We asked the question, isn't God allowing evil just as bad as him causing it? And I think we've come to the conclusion that he's allowed it for a reason. He has a plan that is much greater than our plans. And like it says in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. God and Jesus and the spirit may have allowed evil to come, but Jesus has come in a way that's so much more powerful and rescues and saves us. In Colossians 1, verse 13 through 14, it says this, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And I'll just end with the words that Jesus said in John 16, 33, triple verse combo at the end here. Uh, Jesus says, I have told you these things that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. If you like our show, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. It seriously helps so much. The more reviews we get, the more people will find us. And so if you want to help the show, please just go on iTunes and leave a quick review. We also love questions from listeners and we love to do episodes focused on questions. So if you have a question and you want us to talk about on the show, send it to our email address, which is goodlionnetwork at gmail.com. Send us a question. We'd love to talk about it on the show. The Good Lion Podcast is a production of the Calvary Global Network, and it's produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. Our show is a part of the Good Lion Podcast Network, a network of Christian podcasters that Brian and I started with our friends. Check out our website, goodlion.io, where you can find a ton of other Christ-centered, encouraging, and equipping podcasts. Our goal with this ministry is to reach people all over the world with Christ-centered content that helps them as they walk closer with Jesus. If you like what we do and you want to support us, go to goodlion.io support. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.